Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 30th episode of this podcast, recorded on Tuesday, October 10. Thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. In addition to writing and podcasting, I accept speaking engagements at law firms, in-house legal departments, and law schools. One of my favorite trips this year was heading out to Utah to speak at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University, a.k.a. BYU Law. I thoroughly enjoyed my visit, and for that, I credit my host, then-Dean Gordon Smith. From 2016 until this past June, Smith served as the seventh dean of BYU. He has since returned to the faculty, where he teaches and writes about corporate law. He focuses on law and entrepreneurship, and he's one of the nation's leading experts on this subject. But I wanted to chat with him about law schools and legal education. As I learned during my visit, BYU Law is a very interesting and unusual law school. It's the youngest of the top 25 law schools, and I'd also say, with all due respect to Georgetown, that it's the one with the strongest religious character. BYU Law is affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and all of its faculty members and almost all of its students belong to the church. It's also a school on the rise, jumping from number 46 to number 22 in the U.S. News rankings during Smith's tenure. And in our conversation, Smith shared some of the secrets of its success. In addition, we used BYU Law as a jumping-off point for addressing a wide range of issues affecting the legal academy, including rankings, the LSAT, the bar exam, the skyrocketing cost of tuition, free speech, and more. I try to make my interviews timely and my chat with Dean Smith fit the bill for two reasons. First, as the new academic year gets underway, I've been interviewing a series of professors about issues in legal education, including Amy Chua of Yale and Brian Fitzpatrick of Vanderbilt. But second, BYU Law celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. And in fact, its celebratory gala took place just this past Friday. Congratulations to the law school on this milestone. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Gordon Smith. Dean Smith, or I guess I should say Professor Smith, thank you for joining me. Thanks, David. I appreciate your invitation. Yeah, so it's really wonderful to have you. And I wanted to have you on also time to the start of a new school year because I think your perspective as a recent former dean will shed a lot of light on some of the topics facing law schools that I want to discuss. But before we get into that, I'd like to share with the readers a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small dairy community in Wisconsin, West Central Wisconsin, a little town called Osseo. Okay. And did you have any lawyers in the family? No lawyers. In fact, my parents didn't go to college. My father enlisted in the Navy during World War II, and my mother graduated from high school and then went work at a blue-collar job. And I was born in a naval hospital. My dad ended up making the Navy a career. And so my earliest memories are of him serving as an officer in the Navy and my mom working in the local hospital as a cook. So I noticed that you went to Chicago, of course, for law school, which is one of the nation's best law schools. But I'm curious, since you did your undergraduate work at BYU, 
did you think about going to BYU's law school, which you just finished leading? I have to confess, I didn't even apply to BYU's law school. At the time, I was partly interested in going back to the Midwest. I felt more comfortable there, and I knew that Chicago had a great reputation, and so that really was my top choice of places to go to law school. And BYU Law School was a much different place back in 1987 when I was going to law school than it is now. I didn't have it on my radar, but I think many students who are currently in the situation I was in when I was an undergrad are coming here. So we've managed to attract those kinds of students who want a top legal education. I think BYU at the time lost a lot of those students to top 10 law schools, but now we're getting a lot more of them. And we will get to that. Absolutely. I think the law school has had a huge, you know, again, they're controversial, but the rankings do reflect something. And BYU has certainly zoomed up the rankings under your tenure. We'll get to that. But after you graduated from Chicago, tell us about your legal career after that. I did a clerkship in the Fifth Circuit. I clerked for Eugene Davis in Lafayette, Louisiana. I had never been to Louisiana before I did that clerkship, but that was a great experience. And being in the Fifth Circuit was very interesting to me. It actually solidified my desire to be a transactional lawyer, I should say. So I'm not <laughs> sure if that's a success outcome from a clerkship. My judge did a couple of trials. He had been a trial judge. And so I saw both trial lawyering and appellate lawyering, and I decided that I wanted to be a transactional lawyer. So I went to Skadden Arps and worked on corporate deals for three years before becoming a law professor. And your area of expertise as a professor is in the area of corporate law. So tell us about how you made the jump from working on deals at Skadden to now teaching about them. Well, I was in, the, in Skadden's Wilmington office, so I'm a Delaware lawyer, and it made sense since that was my area of expertise to teach business organizations, which I spent many, many hours at Skadden working on. And so when I first started teaching, I wanted to teach business organizations, securities regulation. I did a fair amount of securities work. And while I was at Lewis Clark, which was my first teaching stop, it was in 1994 when I started and venture capital was just really sort of starting to get on the public radar. And I had a student who came to me and asked if I would teach a class on venture capital I said, I don't know anything about venture capital. And then I thought, well, that, that shouldn't stop me. You know, I can do the research and figure it out. So I started teaching about venture capital and writing about it. And that's what got me interested in entrepreneurship as an intellectual endeavor. And so tell us then, and of course, that remains your area of expertise or one of your areas of expertise. Tell us then your academic career from Lewis and Clark to BYU. I started at Lewis and Clark thinking I would probably be there for the rest of my days. I didn't really have aspirations to sort of climb the law school rankings or whatever. And we really loved living in Portland. After a few years, though, I started to get calls from other law schools. I did visits at WashU, Arizona State, and Vanderbilt. And that really opened my eyes to the diversity in legal education, the fact that law schools really are quite different. And I had limited experience at that point in my career. And so I started exploring other options, especially since I was really, at that time, going more deeply into law and entrepreneurship. I wanted a place where I could do that in a really thorough way and was offered a position at the University of Wisconsin's Law School in what they called an entrepreneurship cluster. I was part of an interdisciplinary campus cluster. I was the law school representative, but we had 
people in the economics department and the business school, and then affiliates throughout the campus who studied entrepreneurship. And then tell us about how you made the jump from Wisconsin to BYU. So I went to law school with a guy that some of your listeners may know, Tom Lee, who was Rex Lee's son. He's the older brother of Senator Mike Lee, and he's also was a justice on the Utah Supreme Court. And in 2006, Tom was a professor at BYU, and he and I were longtime friends, as I said, and he called me and asked if I would be interested in going to BYU, and I told him that I would like to explore it, and that, you know, one thing led to another, and here I am. And then what led you to go from the ranks of faculty into administration in 2016? Well, I guess you may have been a dean even prior to that, but I was an associate dean before I was a dean. And I would say that was not a very intentional path. I've told people recently, I'm not good at making plans because when I look back at my life, so many things just happen. And <laughs> I try to seize opportunities. I think that's a fairly entrepreneurial thing to do, but I, I'm not very good at planning opportunities. So at the end of my first year at BYU, the dean announced that he would be leaving and would be going to the university administration. So we had a dean search in my second year at BYU, and I had been encouraged by colleagues to be a candidate for that. So I was a candidate in that dean search. I was one of the finalists that was recommended to the university, and they chose another one of the finalists who asked me to be an associate dean. And so I was his associate dean for five years. And that was my first brush with law school administration. I had been an associate director of the cluster at Wisconsin that I had referred to about. So I'd done some administration, but this was my first attempt to do law school administration. And it was difficult. I have to say, it was a really challenging job. And after five years, I was worn out. It was <laughs> like, okay, I'm done with that. I thought that, you know, I had taken my turn at the oar and it was time for somebody else to take their turn. And so I left administration and was determined to just return to the, being a professor and doing my classes and research. And then that dean who had asked me to be his associate dean, called me into his office and said, I'm stepping down at the end of this year, and I think you should be a candidate to replace me. And I said, I think that's a horrible idea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought about it for several months and decided that I would do that, and I did become a candidate and was ultimately selected. So now let's turn to your deanship and also some current issues facing academia. When I visited and spoke at BYU Law, I was just really struck by the ways in which it is actually different from the typical law school. I know you mentioned all law schools are different, but I do think BYU stands out even more. So could you talk a bit about what makes BYU different from, I guess you could say, the average of the 200-something ABA-accredited law schools? What are yeah. some features of it that stand out, whether about the faculty, the student body, the mission, et cetera? I don't think it takes very long being in the law school to perceive that we're different than other law schools, and it's very intentional. I mean, we are trying to be unique because we have a unique mission. That mission comes from uh, the fact that we're sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so we have a religious mission that is distinctive among law schools. And I'll say more about that in a second, but I should say that as a baseline, we feel like we need to be excellent at teaching law in the same way that other law schools are excellent at teaching law. That is that, you know, we use the same case books, we use the same class methods in, you know, in, in teaching 
And we think our students need to be prepared in every way, as well as students at other law schools. But there's this other dimension to the education at BYU that I think is challenging. My predecessor used to call this excellence plus. So the excellence part was doing what other law schools do. The plus part was doing what's distinctive to BYU. And that plus part is is really hard because where does the opportunity come up to talk about religious or spiritual topics when you're teaching contracts? I mean, what, are you going to start talking about covenants, not contracts, or what is it that's going to happen? And I think it manifests in a few ways. First of all, a lot of these conversations, a lot of that education happens outside the classroom, happens in office visits, hallway conversations, sometimes happens in activities for the law school. For example, every month we have a devotional where a member of the law school community shares something of their faith experiences with the community. And so there's a lot of things that happen that aren't formally part of, you know, traditional legal education that are sort of the surround, if you will, of the experience that's really important. I think the fact that most of our students and faculty and employees are members of the church allows us to have conversations that would have been a little more difficult for me to have at Wisconsin or Vanderbilt or other places where I've taught. So a lot of it happens in that way. I think another manifestation of it is that we are all, as faculty and employees of the law school, we view ourselves as examples or models to the students. So we try to model behavior that we think is appropriate and and try to develop the students professionally. So we have what we call the whole building approach to professional development. That is, we ask every employee to be an example to the students of how we should interact as professionals. That is, we should have concern for the individual. We should be kind and patient and generous and all of those things. Now, those are aspirations. They don't always happen. And, you know, it's frustrating when they don't. But I think we have an amazing community of people here and it, it happens more often than it doesn't. And I think that's an important part of it. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. I'm curious, what percentage roughly of the faculty and the student body are members of the church? So currently, 100% of the faculty are members of the church. And probably, I don't know the percentage exactly for the students, but it's very high. I mean, it would probably be 97, 98%, something like that. But there's no actual formal requirement for either of those things. As part of being part of the university, there is a code of conduct that we agree to observe. And and that code of conduct includes not consuming coffee or tea or alcoholic <laughs> beverages. And so I think there are a lot of people who might be interested in BYU until they read that code of conduct and say, <laughs> wait, I'm going to have to give up coffee? To <laughs> <laughs> yes, as I sip coffee right here on the yeah. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think it is sort of a selection process that we would love to have more students who are not members of the church. We would love to have faculty who are not members of the church, but it just tends to be that the way those things happen, that most of the people who are attracted to being here are members of the church. 
You know, I have to say, when I visited, I was really struck by the welcoming atmosphere. And I thought to myself, any member of any faith community or no faith community, you know, could be very happy here. It's an excellent law school. But I do see what you're saying. I am curious. Another thing that struck me when I visited, and I think you mentioned this in one of our conversations, was I believe the law school is also very affordable for the average student, which yes. in this day of skyrocketing tuition is not true of many schools. Yeah, we are, I think, without a doubt, the best deal in legal education. I mean, <laughs> the tuition for members of the church is this year, I think it's, now I've lost track of this. I would know this if I were still the dean, but it's about <laughs> $14,500 for a year. Wow. And 100% of our students receive some form of scholarship assistance. Wow. Probably about half receive full tuition or more. And the rest receive generous scholarships. Sometimes it's three-quarter tuition or half tuition or, you know, a smaller amount. But everyone receives something, which is something I started as the dean because I wanted every student to know that they were wanted here, that our funding model is different than any law school in the country. We receive really generous support from the university, which receives its support from the church. And so we don't have a fixed number of spots we need to fill to make budget. So when we admit somebody, it's because we really want that person. And I thought that giving a scholarship to every student who matriculated was a way to manifest that or to express that sentiment to each of the students that we want you here. This isn't just something where you're helping our numbers or filling some category that we're, you know, really desirous of making you part of our community. Well, one thing that struck me also about the connection with the church is that it seems like a brilliant move on the part of the church in the sense that lawyers, for better or worse, are in many ways leaders of society, whether it's government or business or what have you. And so to invest in the training of future lawyers and judges seems like an investment in the church, many members of the church have gone on to very illustrious careers in the law and politics. You mentioned, of course, the Lee family. They're really a legal dynasty. Rex Lee, the former Solicitor General, former Justice Tom Lee, current Senator Mike Lee. So it seems in many ways like it's a conscious decision on the part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to invest in BYU law. Absolutely. The law school, actually, this is the 50th anniversary of our founding, the first class. Oh entered in 1973. And when the law school was announced, there was a great deal of discussion and speculation. I understand I was not conscious of all of this, of course, at the time, but there was a great deal of talk about why the church would want a law school. I mean, lawyers have the reputation that you describe, but they also, in some circles, have other reputational <laughs> baggage. And some people were wondering, like, why is a church-sponsored school creating a law school? And I think over the course of the last 50 years, what you said has borne out in the graduates of the law school, that many of our graduates have become leaders in the church, in their communities, in the profession. And we hope that they've brought something of the values that they learned or developed or honed at BYU Law School to their work as leaders in those capacities. So it's interesting. It's an extremely affordable law school, and it's also now a very highly ranked law school. I believe in your tenure, it went from 46 to 22 or something like that. But let me ask you. Exactly right, by the way, on those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> what importance 
do you think the rankings deserve? That's been a subject of controversy among deans. Some deans, quote unquote, withdrew from U.S. News in terms of not providing certain data to the magazine, and then the magazine overhauled its methodology so it no longer really needs that data. But what is your thought on the rankings? Every dean's relationship with the rankings is somewhat fraught, right? Because in some ways, the report card on our deanship and many of the pieces of the rankings are outside of our control. And so it feels unfair, I think, to many people to be subject to that. You know, I think like many people, I just sort of accept that we're going to do rankings of some sort. I went to law school in 1987. This was before the U.S. News had its rankings. If you had asked me at the time, what are the top four or five law schools, I would have said Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Chicago, Stanford would be the top five that I was looking at at the time. If you look at the top five law schools now, I mean, it's pretty much the same. You know, it's the same list. The rankings didn't really change that. And, you know, maybe there was some, I think Yale has certainly benefited by being number one in their U.S. news rankings forever. They've benefited from that perception that they're really the top of those top law schools. But I tend still, I think, to think of law schools in clusters and rather than in a sort of ordinal ranking. And I think of BYU as a top 25 law school. I don't really think of BYU as number 22. Last year, we were number 23. And, you know, I don't really think of it that way. But I do think we're probably one of the 30 law schools in the top 25, you know, so something like that. And I think that that's probably, as a dean, about as healthy a perspective as you can have on it. Because if you get too caught up in every movement, I think that's not going to be good for your mental or psychological health. Now, having said all that, there are parts of the rankings that really are aligned with student welfare and in a way that I will say changed the way I made decisions as a dean, I think, for the benefit of our students. The most obvious there is the employment statistics. I worked really hard to have a career development office that gave our students the sort of service and development opportunities that would lead to employment. I worked hard with law firms to get them to interview and hire from BYU. And I was lucky in that I didn't have to spend most of my time fundraising and much of the time that I spent outside the law school was working with law firms to try to get them interested in hiring our students. And it's born fruit. I mean, in the last two rankings, we were in the top 10 in that employment number. And I think it would be hard to say that wasn't a beneficial thing for our students to have that work done on their behalf. I think the emphasis on the LSAT and the GPA has been reduced in the most current rankings. That seems appropriate to me. I think we overemphasize those when they were large parts of the rankings. We probably still, I think law schools generally still maybe overemphasize those entering credentials. So there are parts that cause you to make decisions that you sort of wonder about and then parts where you think, okay, I'm doing a good thing here. Mm -hmm. Well, if you'll allow me to toot my own horn in a way, Above the Law instituted some rankings a number of years ago that focused intensely on employment. And I will note that U.S. News followed suit and its new rankings focus much more on employment and much more on outputs as opposed to inputs, which was really what we were going for back when I was 
at Above the Law. I just want to give you kudos for that because, of course, as a dean, I was watching all of that. And, you know, you watch every ranking that comes out. And the Above the Law rankings were quite volatile for us, partly because our employment was inconsistent. I've told our career development office, I think we should be at or near 100% employment every year. I think that's the goal, that we should consistently develop our students to the point where they uh, can be employed. And I think that's where we are right now. And I think mm-hmm. it's an important thing that we should emphasize. So let me ask you actually about your deanship from 2016 to 2023. Obviously, there was this big jump in the rankings, but I think we probably both agree that may not be necessarily an accomplishment in and of itself, but reflects other accomplishments on underlying metrics. Is there something you would say from your deanship that you are most proud of, a signature achievement or accomplishment you would note? Yeah, I've thought about that because people ask me that question actually a fair amount. And I think the thing that I am probably the most proud of is something that doesn't show up in any ranking, which is that I think the culture of the law school has changed quite dramatically in the last seven years. And that was a heavy lift. And let me describe, first of all, the process we went through and then maybe a little bit about how I think it's changed. But One of the things I heard when I was an associate dean and when I was a candidate for the deanship was that the law school was really only serving the interests of top students, that we didn't really care about students. Like, you know, the analogy that came up, and of course it was current at the time I was becoming the dean, but it was sort of a Hunger Games atmosphere, right? (laughs) That, you know, if you were a victor, you were going to be celebrated, but everybody else, you know, were not interested in you. I'm convinced being on the faculty side, that was never really true, but it was certainly the perception of many students and alumni of the law school. And so we wanted to change that. And we've already mentioned a couple of things that contributed to changing that. I think that having scholarships for every student was a big step in changing that, to say to the students, We value every one of you. It's not just certain students. Now, the scholarships, there was some differential. So, you know, there were students who got more scholarship and students got less scholarship. But I wanted every student to know that we valued them in that way. I think the change in the career development office, which was a complete overhaul in a way, but really one of the things I asked them to do and which I think they've done successfully I'll just say that, I mean, it's the first thing I asked the new director of that office when I hired her, I said, you need to know the name of every law student, just full stop. Like you need to know every one of them. So when you see them in the hall, you can call them by their name. There's nobody here who should be anonymous to us. We should know all of them. And beyond that, we should know what they want to do with their career. And we should be in a position to help them. If they want to work in a small town in Utah, we should be able to bring our resources to bear on that. If they want to work at Cravath or Skadden in New York City, we should be able to make that happen for them. And so that was an important step. And then I'll mention something else that I think has been really important that we haven't talked about yet, but I think was partly just a good educational move, but also partly a building of the culture. And that is we created several programs for students that were available to everybody, that they weren't just available based on class rank. For example, at the end of the first year, all of our students are eligible to participate in an academy 
And that academy is a one-week boot camp type experience at a law firm somewhere in the United States. We pay for the students' expenses to go on the academy. So we pay for their travel, their hotels, most of their meals. And then the students can work. For example, I do a startup academy in collaboration with Wilson Sonsini in Palo Alto. And this last year, I brought 12 of our students to Palo Alto, and we spent several days at Wilson Sonsini. We visited with other players in the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship ecosystem, and we try to give students an exposure to that. Several of our students changed their career plans after that academy and said, I didn't realize I was interested in Silicon Valley, but this is precisely what I want to do. And I want to return to that professional development in just a sec, but let me double back to something you alluded to earlier. You talked in the rankings about how they or certain administrators may pay too much attention to the statistics of entering classes. Do you have any thoughts on the current debate in the ABA and elsewhere about whether law schools should have some kind of standardized admissions test like the LSAT or the GRE? It turns out I'm probably an outlier among deans. I didn't realize when we started that debate that I would be an outlier on this one, but I actually favored getting rid of the admission test requirement. And it's not actually that I don't like the LSAT. I think as a student, I thought taking the LSAT was great fun. I don't know. That seems (laughs) also probably an outlier position. And I think it can be valuable in assessing some students. I think there are some students who for one reason or another, have difficulty with their undergraduate record, but are really quite capable. And the LSAT is a way for them to manifest that they can really, you know, do what's required at the law school, that they won't feel left behind here. But I don't understand why the ABA, as a matter of accreditation, requires LSAT. I think if we got rid of that requirement, we would see more experimentation with other metrics on admissions. And I think that sort of thing would be good. I think it would lead to more diversity in enrollments, and I think it would lead to greater diversity of all kinds, geographic, sort of viewpoint diversity, as well as racial and ethnic diversity. I think if schools would develop their own admission criteria. For example, I think one thing that we've done and we were an early mover on this, is we interview every student who is a credible applicant to the law school. As I say, before we offer admission, we always interview the students. And that goes into not only the admission decision, but other decisions we make around admission, including scholarships and that sort of thing. And I think that sort of attention, which we can give because we have a small class and a small applicant pool, but I think it allows us to get some people in the class that really enrich the law school that might not be admitted just on the numbers. And I think the ABA's mandate that we have an admission test sort of contributes to that culture where the numbers become really important. I'm fond of saying to prospective students that BYU, you're not just a number, you're two numbers. But I think it's, you know, I think, you know, you really shouldn't be two numbers either. You should be a person. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm struck by the sense of community you've built and the culture and how the folks in the career services office know everyone's name. How large is the average either entering or graduating class at the law school? We're now averaging about 120 and it fluctuates. This year we had a smaller entering class. Last year we had a larger one. And this is, again, a function of the fact that we're not driven so much by 
trying to fill a specified number of seats to meet our budget. But, you know, we try to have a law school somewhere between 360 and 400 students, somewhere in there. I shouldn't say we're sort of immune to talk about budgets, but I think if we're in that space, the university's generally happy with us and it gives us flexibility on admissions. If we have a particularly strong admission pool, then we're able to admit a few more. If we feel like it wasn't as strong one year, we can contract the class a little bit in mm-hmm. that case. But the important thing for us is to get people we think are the right quality because it's just not good for students either to be admitted to a class where they can't keep up. I mean, I've seen that many times where students are admitted and probably to fill a spot and they can't keep up and it's a miserable experience, you know, so we try to make sure all of our students are going to be happy here and that they're going to be able to thrive at BYU. Well, I think 120 is a great class size. I'm a little biased. I went to Yale, also a small law school, but I think that small is beautiful many times when it comes to law schools. So turning to something that is at the intersection of two things we've talked about already, namely tests and the transition from law school to practice. What do you think about the bar exam, another subject of intense debate? So I have fairly strong opinions about the bar exam. I think it's not a test of competence, which is what it purports to be. I don't think it's ever been that. I think it's a test. It's essentially designed to limit the number of people who can practice law. And I think the effect of it is therefore to limit, I think, people who would really do a lot of good in the community if they could get a license. Let me start from this point. In the United States, law is a graduate education. We're one of only two countries I know of where law is graduate school. South Korea is the other, and most countries, law is an undergraduate education. What that means is if you graduate from law school, you've already done an undergraduate degree, and then you've done law school. And this other, I don't know what it is, IQ test or whatever the bar exam really tests. I mean, after that much education, I'm not sure what work the bar exam is doing. It's certainly filtering out some people that I know could be really great lawyers. What would you see as the alternative, diploma privilege, some other system? Well, I was a Wisconsin professor, and we did have diploma privilege in Wisconsin. And I will say that as far as I know, there aren't any problems with, or at least greater problems with attorney misconduct or client representation in Wisconsin than there are in any other state. I think one of the things that diploma privilege clearly does is it gives credit to the fact that somebody has just done three years of law school and managed to complete that successfully. I will say at Wisconsin, it does put the onus on the law school to be the filter, right? So if there's somebody that we think couldn't represent, you know, their clients well, we had to step up and say, we're not going to graduate you because we know that graduation essentially is equivalent to licensing you to practice. And so it does put a little bit heavier burden on law schools. If you don't have that, I think law schools are tempted to sort of wave people through, get them across the finish line and say, well, you know, maybe they won't pass the bar. I mean, it's not our problem if they don't pass Mm -hmm. the bar. And I don't think that's a great situation either. What we've done in Utah is during the pandemic, during COVID, the Utah Supreme Court issued an emergency order for home privilege in the summer of 2020 by Every account that I have heard, those students are magnificent lawyers. There have been no problems admitting that class without taking the bar exam. In fact, I think the court was so impressed with that experiment that they 
formed a task force to look at alternatives to the bar examination. And they're in the process. I got an update on this yesterday. They're in the process of now going around the state to different groups of lawyers explaining a proposal that they are hoping to make sometime next year, I believe, to eliminate the traditional bar exam and have a different path to licensure. That path to licensure would include various tasks that prospective lawyers would have to complete. Many of those tasks they could complete in law school. They're tasks that relate to taking certain classes or developing certain skills, but many of those could be done during law school. There will be a few things that would have to be done after graduation from law school, but not a traditional bar examination. And I think that's really got some potential to be a reform that other states would be attracted to as well. Just a side note, I know I'm talking a lot about this, but the Utah Supreme Court just this year lowered the cut score for the bar exam because I think they had become convinced that having a cut score as high as Utah's wasn't really productive for the bar. And so they lowered the cut score and that resulted in more people passing the bar, a few more this year, slightly higher percentage this year than last year. And I think that's probably a good thing that those people are going to be capable representatives of their clients. And I just really don't lose sleep over that at all. I personally have come around to the view of either diploma privilege or alternatives to the bar exam. And I think it works especially well in states or legal markets like Utah and Wisconsin, where you have a limited number of very good law schools. You have a relatively small legal community. I think it can work very well. Let me ask one final question or raise one final topic. One thing I've covered a lot at Original Jurisdiction is free speech, viewpoint diversity, et cetera. And I understand that BYU, reflecting its connection to the church, has a different policy on speakers than I think probably many other schools. Can you talk about that? And can you talk just generally about what you think the climate for speech and viewpoint diversity is like at the law school these days? Yeah. I'll be able to speak mostly about BYU's climate. I'm not an expert on other law schools' climate, sure. but I think as a Chicago grad, I should say I'm very fond of the Chicago principles. I think BYU wasn't really in a position where they were going to adopt the Chicago principles, but that would be my starting point or, you know, if you will, a gold standard for free speech on campuses. They are, of course, controversial. Chicago principles are not without their own controversy, but I think that I was sort of raised in that milieu and that makes sense to me. BYU has, I would say, one primary limitation on speech on campus. And I mentioned to you earlier, I was going to bring up the uh, policy so I could just read it to you. And I'm not in the habit of like doing a dramatic reading of uh, <laughs> university policies, but this is short. And one of the conditions of inviting a speaker to speak on campus is that the presentation must not seriously and adversely affect the university's mission or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, including expression that contradicts or opposes rather than analyzes or discusses fundamental church doctrine or policy or expression that deliberately attacks or derides the church or its general leaders. So, there is that. And the line, I mean, the sort of shorthand line is found in the middle of that. Like, you can have expression that analyzes or discusses church doctrine or policy. That's okay. But if you're just there to contradict or oppose, that is to just say, I think the policy is wrong or stupid or whatever. 
And again, I think that's probably a good, no matter what your free speech policy, if you're inviting speakers who are just there to throw bombs at ideas rather than to analyze or discuss ideas. That makes perfect sense. And as I was telling you before we went on air, I actually support policies like BYU's in the sense that schools that have particular missions sometimes tied to, for example, uh, a religious uh, community or maybe tied to a mission, a social justice issue, what have you. I think that's part of the First Amendment too, being able to have schools with missions and uh, they can govern themselves accordingly. They don't have to all be open to all comers in all ways. So I think that's great. So let me shift now to the final four questions of my little speed round. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system of governance. Law school and legal education and the practice of law transformed my life. I feel greatly indebted to the profession and to this industry for who I am. I am a big promoter of legal education. Having said that, I think one thing that you knew there was a but coming in there, right? (laughs) So I think that one of the things I am troubled by is the access to justice gap in the United States. And it's something that should trouble every lawyer. And I think the thing that most troubles me is how unwilling the legal profession seems to address that access to justice gap. Now, we have adopted in Utah one well-publicized experiment called the Utah Sandbox, which is designed to essentially approve the provision of legal services by people who are not licensed as lawyers in certain discrete categories. And that has been extremely controversial among the bar, even though I think that, you know, the impulse here is to try to get legal services to people who are not currently getting legal services. Bar doesn't have an answer to this. The answer I usually hear from lawyers is that we need to do more pro bono But this is a gap that is so large that we can't pro bono our way out of it. We need other people to be working on the access to justice gap. And I think the the profession by and large has failed in its efforts to do that. So I don't hesitate to call out the profession on that front. I think it's really embarrassing, actually, Mm -hmm. that state of affairs. I agree with you. And I should have a guest actually on to talk about the justice gap. And I think it's not unrelated to what we were talking earlier about in terms of the bar exam, which in many ways sort of creates this little legal cartel and probably has the effect of raising the cost of legal services. But anyway, (laughs) my second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer, law professor, dean? Yeah, I think this is probably the easiest question you've asked me all day. I would be an (laughs) entrepreneur. I mean, yeah. And I think as an academic, I mean, I don't think most people who are entrepreneurially oriented think, gee, I want to be a professor, you know, <laughs> but I think they're highly related. I mean, as a professor, we have a strong emphasis on producing ideas that are new to the world. And so that sort of original thinking that goes into scholarship and teaching innovation is a very entrepreneurial mindset. And I have no doubt that I would be an entrepreneur if I weren't a professor. And I try to be an entrepreneur as a professor. And I think You've certainly introduced a lot of innovation at the law school when you were dean. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Oh, that's, the answer to this question has changed over time. As a dean, I didn't regularly get eight hours. I'd say probably an average of six. And now I'm on leave this year, and I am luxuriating in not having responsibilities that I used to have. And I found that I've actually done a little research on the importance of sleep, and I really would advise any 
beans to get more sleep than I got. Yeah, so now I get eight hours usually. Good. Well, speaking of advice, it's a good segue to my final question, which is any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? Yeah, I'm not sure this falls into the advice category. Maybe it does. But in my last town hall at the law school, I talked about lawyers as peacemakers. And I got to I'm sorry, I'm choking up a little bit here because I'm thinking about events in Israel over the last few days and thinking about sort of how horrific that situation is in Gaza. And I just feel for those people. And I really think that if you dedicate your life to making peace, whether that's on a micro level with your friends and family or on a macro level, you know, world peace, whatever you do, I think lawyers have the capacity do incredible good in this world by being peacemakers and not being being the sort of people who profit from stirring up contention among groups. I think that's, to me, it's just an immoral thing to do. But to have people who could bring people together, uplift people, make people better, help people live the lives they want to live, to me, there's no more noble thing to do than that. And so I invite all of our students to be peacemakers. And if I had advice for anybody, it's like, if if you live your life in that way, I think you're going to find that you have a life filled with meaning and that that's probably what all of us want. Well, I think that is a wonderful note to conclude on. I think that you and your life and career have definitely lived by those words. So Professor Smith, Dean Smith, Gordon, I thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much to Professor Smith for joining me. I'm grateful for his time and insight, as well as the warm welcome I received when I visited BYU earlier this year. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, November 1. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.